to get what you want out of life, but it inevitably leads to a dead end. The other way is God's way, and not only does it look harder, it is harder, and it would be impossible if it weren't for God meeting us in his way and being our companion on the way. With God, nothing is impossible. And God's way is always the best way because he made us with this end in mind. His way leads to lifelong fulfillment. It is the end that we most deeply desire. We are lost without God, but when we find God, when we walk in his way, we are home. I bought my wife a canoe for her birthday. It's one of those gifts that she didn't know she wanted or needed, but was blessed to, to receive it. And we took a family trip on the Shenandoah River um, earlier, I guess it was last month, a couple weeks ago. And it was a stretch that we didn't know, and the current was strong. There had been a lot of rain. We were moving really fast, and we kept coming to these forks where we had to decide which way to go. And we did make uh, a wrong turn at one point and ended up downriver at a dead end. And when the current is high, that's a lot of work to, to uh, get back. Thankfully, we were able to get back, but it was a lot of hard work, a long, slow, tiresome paddle back. If we'd only had a map, then we would have known the right way to go, and we could have avoided that dead end. Well, thankfully, in life, we do have a map. God's word is a road map for life, and God has generously given it to us to show us very clearly on really every page of the Bible these two ways to go and the ends where they lead. Open the Bible to most any page, and you're going to find these two ways. One of my favorite passages from the Bible is Psalm 1, it stands as a table of contents to the Psalms, and it really stands as, as an emblem of these two ways to live. There is one way, uh, on the one hand, if you walk in the counsel of the wicked and you stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers, well, then you will come to a dead end, and you will end up scattered like dust in the wind. On the other hand, if you delight in God, delight in his word and his ways, well, then you are going to flourish. You're going to be like a tree planted by streams of water, and you're going to be green and fruitful all your days. There's no uncertainty about these two ends, and clearly the way of the Lord is the way to go. God called ancient Israel to a certain end. He called ancient Israel to be a light to the nations. Their end was to be his porch light, welcoming everyone home to God. Israel's communion with the Lord was to be so sweet, so attractive and winsome, that all peoples everywhere would be drawn home to God. They would want to come and drink from that same living water. They would want to put out their branches and bear fruit also. That was the end of Israel that God had intended. But Israel chose another end. A dead end. Israel chose to walk in the counsel of the wicked, and from there they continued down a path that eventually led to exile and being scattered like dust in the wind. Their light went out, and for centuries the whole world lived in pitch darkness. We're going to look today at this end, the end of Israel, 
not only as it was when the darkness closed in, but also some centuries later when miraculously the light reappeared through God's uh, miraculous intervention. And the Lord himself accomplished the end that he intended for Israel. He did not abandon us or the world to a dead end. Tom Petty said that you don't have to live like a refugee, and uh, here's this good news in the Bible. Even Tom Petty got it from there, I would imagine. There's light and life for all who turn to him. We're going to find this as we explore his word together. After we pray, we're going to see the end that Israel chose, we're going to see the end that Jesus chose, and we're going to look at the end that we can choose together. Let's pray together before we dive in. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you guide us and lead us into paths of life, into paths of fruitfulness, to be who you've made us to be. And we ask by your spirit, you would open up your word for us tonight, that we would hear from you and our lives would be changed. Bless us with understanding and wisdom and a heart to follow you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So take a look at 2 Kings 17, page 278 in the Church Bible. We're going to start with verse 6, considering the end that Israel chose. It says, In the ninth year of King Hosea, who was king of the northern kingdom, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried away Israel. And he placed them in Hala and in the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. The very same place, the very same valley where Abraham had heard the call of the Lord some 1,200 years earlier. Sometime around 1000 BC, King David uh, united all the 12 tribes of Israel under one kingdom, a single monarchy in Israel. Uh, he ruled over the 12 tribes. His son Solomon also ruled over the 12 tribes. And then it was David's grandson, Rehoboam, uh, under whom there was a civil war. And the country divided into north and south. And in today's passage, it was the year 722 B.C. Some 210 years had passed since the kingdom was torn in two. Many prophets had come and gone, each with their own voice, declaring two ends, two ways to go and warning Israel about turning away from the Lord, because if they turned away from the Lord, if they continued to walk down that path, uh, taking in the counsel of the wicked, then they would end bitterly. The end that God intended was that they be a light to the nations. The end that they were headed towards was the bitter end that comes to all who turn away from the Lord of life. And in 2 Kings 17, we meet King Hosea, the 20th king to reign over the northern kingdom, and the 20th consecutive king who did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, verse 2. He chose to go it alone apart from God, and he led Israel to a bitter end. In his ninth year as king, the 210th year of the nation, that is 70 plus 70 plus 70 years, God's long-suffering came to completion. God's patience was fulfilled. Israel reached a dead end, and the people were scattered into exile. 
Exile has a sacramental function in the Bible. It's not a sacrament, but it functions sacramentally. Let me explain what that means. It is an outward, visible demonstration of separation from home, representing the spiritual reality of our alienation from God. We all feel it. We've all always felt it because it's been the reality of all people. We've all been born into exile. Ever since Genesis 3, Adam and Eve chose to walk in the counsel of the wicked, and because of it, they were banished from the garden. Their exile from paradise was sacramental. It was a physical reminder of their spiritual separation from God. And it's been this way for everyone ever since. The Bible vividly portrays our ongoing exile as something that builds and grows and and becomes darker over time. Think about what happened to Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel, in the very next story. After Cain murdered Abel, he was banished, cut off from his family, because he cut off his brother from the land of the living. And exile begets exile, and it begets exile. Think about the story of the Tower of Babel. It comes a little bit after that. When peoples united in their, in their uh, separation from God and God scattered them further and confused their languages, scattering them like dust in the wind, exile begets exile. All the way down to today when we cut people off because they hurt us and we scatter and separate. Apart from the Lord, exile is the human condition. God chose Abraham long ago. He did so with a special purpose in mind. He intended for Abraham to be a conduit of blessing for all the families of the world. By delighting in the Lord, Abraham's descendants were to be a light to the nations. They were to become God's porch light, welcoming everyone home to him. This was the end of Israel that God had intended. Instead, Israel's end was the same as Babel's. After centuries of walking in the way of the wicked, they came to a dead end. An outward sign demonstrating the inward condition of their hearts. So God took them back where he found them. And he dumped them out in the valley where Abraham had first come to hear God 1,200 years earlier. The northern kingdom went first. That's the story that we heard read tonight. But it also happened to the southern kingdom of, uh, a few years later. Look at verses 19 and 20. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. It took another century for Judah to hit rock bottom. They eventually fell to Babylon in 586 B.C. But the result was verse 20. The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he cast them out of his sight. What in the world had they done? Why did they deserve such a bitter end? Verse 7 says the reason was idolatry. That was first and foremost the cause of this. Look at verse 7. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. After God delivered them from death and destruction to himself for the life of the world, Israel had one responsibility only, and that was to fear the Lord. Not fear in terms of terror, but fear in terms of awe and respect and love, like you would give to a great hero. In the language of the Psalms, to fear the Lord is to delight in him, to love him so much that you delight in his word and his ways. 
Instead, Israel feared the non-gods of the surrounding nations, and they believed that by worshiping those non-gods around them, that they would have all of the power and pleasure that they saw uh, of the kings in the nations around them. The beliefs have consequences. The god or non-gods that we worship shape how we live, shape what we do. Thus, in verse 8, Israel walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. You see how the way that we live shapes or is shaped by what we worship. If you think about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments start with having no other gods before Almighty God, and they end with how we treat our, our family and how we treat our neighbors. Jesus summarizes the law in the same way. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He summarizes them in the same way because this is the way it always works. Who you worship affects how you treat your neighbors, how you treat your loved ones. Who you worship shapes how you live. In ancient Israel, instead of loving the Lord, the one true God, the people loved the Baals and the Asherim. Verse 10. And they set up for themselves altars on every high hill and under every green tree. And then look at verse 11. They engaged in the practices that go along with the worship of these gods, sexual immorality and drunkenness and so on. And they even went so far as to sacrifice their own children to these gods. Verse 17, they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings. They used divination and omens and so on. They provoked the Lord to anger. Not everyone sinned against the Lord in these ways. We have these great examples of people like Elijah and Elisha uh, before this story. They chose not to walk in the way of sinners. But Israel's kings all did this. And because they all did this, because they all chose a dead end, the masses followed them so that the result over time was corporate downfall. Verse 15, they despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. They despised God's statutes. They abandoned all his commandments, it says. Every last vestige of their royal priesthoodness just dissolved. And despite some notable exceptions, the light went out in Israel and darkness covered the earth once again. And their holy culture went down the drain. That was the bitter end that Israel chose. We've seen the end that Israel chose. Let's think about the end that Jesus chose, a very different end. And if you want to turn to Mark chapter 1, we'll see that there. It's page 713. Having seen the end that Israel chose, it's very tempting at this point to shift to application and to apply exile to our current cultural moment here in America. We see the moral degradation of the United States, the culture is going to hell, and it's very tempting to say, uh, this is going to happen to America. I can read you a long passage from Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, and I can tell you 
uh, that unless America repents, God will send us into exile as well. But that's just not true. It's just not true. It's not what the Bible says. When Israel ended up scattered like dust in the wind, they became like everybody else, like it had always been, because everybody lives in exile ever since Genesis 3. The whole world is already scattered, already in exile, and our country is no different. Had it not been for the end that Jesus chose, there would be no hope for any of us. Jesus was born 700-odd years after the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. And by some accounts, the physical exile had come to an end by the time Jesus was born. The Persians had conquered the Babylonians. Cyrus the Great became the emperor, and he started letting people go back to Jerusalem. And so uh, there were those who went back with Nehemiah to build the wall, and then there were those who went back with Zerubbabel to build the temple. And things started going again as, as the Jews started going back to uh, the land of Canaan. So in some respects, the physical exile came to an end not too long after it began. Yet in Jesus' day, hundreds of years later, the people were still suffering greatly. The Romans exploited and persecuted them, such that crucifixion was so commonplace that kids grew up seeing it in every town all the time. Jewish men were being crucified all the time. And then the so-called Jewish King Herod, who wasn't really Jewish, was no better. He was enslaving his people to build fortresses and palaces just to keep up with the Romans. And then the, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, were no better either. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were, hard, hard, were far from him, as Jesus said, pointing out all of the ways that their self-righteousness and their injustice and greed and their exploitation of the poor uh, undermined the story that they uh, said that they believed. So in Jesus' day, even though many Jews had returned to the land, it still felt like a far country and not their home. Israel was God's prodigal son, the son who took the inheritance and squandered it on idolatry and dissipation. And they awoke from their bender in exile in a far country. Maybe back in Israel, maybe somewhere else, but far away from God, like chaff in the wind. We said Psalm 80 a few minutes ago, and there are parts of it that condense all of Israel into one person, the Son of God, as it says. Uh, a call to, to God to restore Israel. It says in Psalm 80, Turn again, O God of hosts, Look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine that you've planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man that you've made strong for yourself. This was common in the Old Testament to condense all of Israel down to one man in, in the poets especially. In Mark 1, as we heard, Jesus is introduced as the son of God the Messiah. And in the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world to this end, to be the true Israel. John the Baptist prepared the way, and then here comes Jesus 
for his baptism. And Jesus passes through the water, and a voice from heaven declares, You are my beloved Son, in whom, you are, in whom I am well pleased. Why? Because Jesus feared God, because he delighted in God's word and his ways, and Jesus was the true Israel because of it. After passing through the Red Sea, Israel began to walk in the counsel of the wicked and stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers. So they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and the first generation died. Jesus, after passing through the waters, went out into the wilderness where Satan tempted him to walk in the counsel of the wicked. But Jesus feared God. He chose the way of the Lord. He was the true Israel. When Israel entered the promised land, they squandered their inheritance on idolatry and dissipation. When Jesus came into the promised land, he said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The whole world had suffered in darkness long enough. It was time for God's light to shine. So the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness, well, they saw a great light. Because the true Israel, the Son of God, had come. And God's kingdom was finally opening for all. The porch light had come on and God was welcoming them home through the true Israel, his son. Everyone started coming through Jesus. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles, zealots and Pharisees, tax collectors and prostitutes. All coming to the Lord because the porch light was on and God was welcoming them home. All nations and all families of the world coming in and receiving the blessings that have been promised through Abraham. But Jesus resisted every effort to make him king by force. Those whom he healed, he said, shh, keep it secret. No coup d'etat right now. It's not going to be a march on Jerusalem. We're not going to take it by force. Because Jesus was the true Israel. And he had to follow what was in the scriptures. That was what was required of him to fulfill the end of Israel, to fulfill the scriptures. The prodigal son, if you know the story, could not simply return to his father and act as if nothing had happened. He had to come and die. He said, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your slaves. Jesus had to fulfill the scriptures when he, the true Israel, came back to the promised land, back to the not-so-holy city of Jerusalem, the city that had killed the prophets, the city where the kings had whored after non-gods and burned their children in the fire. Jesus came for the bitter end to accomplish the end of Israel. And as the angel told Joseph, his father, and as the prophets had foretold, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. This is the end that Jesus chose. On Good Friday, he experienced exile in full, choosing death on the cross to deliver the world from exile. That was the end that Jesus chose. So we've considered the end that Israel chose and the end that Jesus chose. Let's talk about the end that we can choose. We can be rid of this exile because Jesus fulfilled the scriptures and accomplished the end of Israel. God vindicated his true son. 
He delivered him from exile. And on Easter, God brought Jesus back from the dead. He brought out his best robe and put it on him. He put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and he gave him complete authority over the kingdom. And now as the risen Messiah King, Jesus is accomplishing the end of Israel by drawing all people to himself. He is making all things new. He's redeeming all creation from exile. Jesus is the light of the world. He's God's porch light shining brightly to welcome home Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female. We are all invited because apart from Jesus, we are all in exile. It's not as if our country stands on the brink unless we repent. Our nation and indeed the whole world is already in exile. It's been this way for as long as anyone can remember. And apart from Jesus, we're all groping in the dark. It's like this fog of nostalgia for some place where we feel welcome and at home, a place that we belong, a place that we don't remember how to find it, but we long for it all the same. 20th century philosopher Martin Heidegger described this using a German word, long German word, bringing together all these different ideas, Unheimlichkeit, which has a sense of... of uh, homelessness, unease, disease um, of, of not being at home. Since sin came into the world, we all feel this Unheimlichkeit to one degree or another. And it's a terrible feeling, longing for a place that you cannot find, groping for a place that you're, you're hoping will still exist, but is out of reach. And then along comes Jesus, the true Israel, turns on the porch light and says, welcome home. You don't have to feel this any longer. Whether Christianity is brand new to you or whether you grew up in the church, consider which end have you chosen? Do you find yourself loving God, delighting in his word and his ways? enjoying his presence? Or do you find yourself walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers, and increasingly dissipation, scattered, dust in the wind? We can choose a different end. We can choose to return from exile to God through Jesus the light of the world. He's the true Israel. He is the faithful son who died to ransom his people from sin and death. You can leave behind that far country and come home to God through him. Choose this way of the Lord and he will make you green and fruitful. He will bless you and welcome you home. Let's pray. We praise you, almighty God, for Jesus, the true and faithful son, in whom we find life and light and hope for us and for the whole world. Thank you for this hope in him. 
you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to follow you in a way that leads to life. We pray in Jesus' name.